up for a move of God uh, one more time. In Jesus' name, somebody said, Amen. Amen. I want to talk to you this Sunday and next Sunday about unleashing glory. Unleashing glory. In July of 2022, I talked about seeing the Shekinah. This is kind of third part from that. But unleashing glory. There have been multiple times in my life where I have experienced God's presence in an indescribable way. Moments that I distinctly remember. Moments where uh, all I could do was tremble. Moments where I felt a joy that was unspeakable and full of glory. Moments uh, where I felt more love than I've ever felt in my entire life. More accepted in that moment of experiencing and encountering God. There's been moments where all I could do was fall down on my face under the sovereign presence of God. There's been moments where all I could do is trembling fall to my knees, sometimes speaking a language that I don't know, and sometimes just being completely silent because it's the glory of God that comes over you. There's something about God's presence that is indescribable, and amazingly, it is attainable through Jesus Christ. I I don't know how to uh, tell you, but I want to go through some characteristics that best talk to me that I thought about this year of 10 things I want to see in our church that I believe essential, 10 essential traits or qualities, 10 essential characteristics about being a person that pursues God's glory and sees God's glory in their life, but being caught up with God. In Psalms 29 verse 9, there's a verse that says, "...in His temple everything says glory." Somebody say, glory. In his temple, everything has an aha moment with glory. The psalmist declared, in his temple, everything can't but help say glory. It's the natural response to seeing God's glory is to just exclaim glory. It's a, it's a gasp of glory. It's a response to his honor and his praise. Uh, the word glory means to honor and to praise the greatness, the wealth, or power of, of person like a king. But God's glory in Scripture is the radiant splendor of His being. Somebody say radiant, radiant. Splendor. splendor. It's the radiant splendor of His being. It is the majesty of His presence, and it comes out as light. It came as a consuming fire uh, multiple times in Scripture. It's, it's the tangible experience of His majestic presence. And when we say glory, glory means weighted value. It's both two things. It's the radiant light of His presence, but in His tangible presence it is a, a weight like gold reflects its shiny. And the purer the gold is, the shinier it is. And the way the uh, Old Testament writers describe it, it's that the value of the weight of God's presence. Do we know the value of the weight of God's presence? Let me give you some examples. There was a moment in Moses' life where God, uh, in Exodus chapter 19, and, and uh, God says to Moses, Moses, I'm going to let the people see me. No man can see me and live, but I'm going to let the people see me in a way. And the Bible says that God's glory descended on Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, the Mount of God, and it came covered in a cloud because man can't even see it and live, but covered in a cloud it came down with lightning and flashes and uh, thunder and earthquake. And God said, no one can touch the mountain, even a goat cannot touch the mountain or they'll die, but Moses, come up. And Moses went up into the midst of the cloud and saw the veiled glory of God. 
So much so that uh, uh, everyone else feared in awe. They thought the guy had died. And Moses is up there, and that's the story where he receives the Ten Commandments. And you know maybe the, the shortened version, they make a golden calf in God's image, trying to make up an image for God because they feared the glory so much they needed to bring something down to their level that they could handle and manage. And so God says, I'm not going to send my glory with you. And you know this verse in Exodus chapter 33, verse 17, that's where we are. Moses re, uh, repented for the people. He desperately intercedes. And what did he say? The Lord said to Moses, I will do this thing of which you've asked of me, which you've spoken. For you have found favor in my sight, and I've known you by name. In verse 18, Exodus 33. Then Moses said, what? I pray, show me your glory. Show me your divine radiance. Show me your majestic splendor. Show me the weighted value of your presence. I saw it in the cloud through the top of the mountain, but I want to see you face to face. And God says, Moses, you can't see me and live, but I'll put you in a cleft of a rock. I'll put my hand over you and I'll pass by you. And from that day on, what happened to Moses' face? It radiated. It reflected the glory of God as if his own face said, glory. His own face said glory. There's even David. David said in Psalms 27, 4, he says, The one thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, to meditate in His temple. Now think about this. David, he has this tent called the tabernacle, and in that tent is the Ark of the Covenant. Think Indiana Jones, right? You know, the Ark of the Covenant. And there's no, there's no TVs in this place. Come on, just follow with me for a minute. There's no TVs. There's no recliners with pizza. There's no roller coasters. He's like, this is the place I want to spend the rest of my life. I don't want to go anywhere else. This place right here. It's not a theme park. It's not Disneyland. It's not an all-you-can-eat buffet at Golden Corral. It's not got the best popcorn shrimp on the block. This is a place, though, that is just curtains. The only thing there is consecrated things. There's nothing fancy about this place. But there was something tangible in the room that David said, there's no other place I want to spend the rest of my life. What is it about the tangible presence of God? You see, there's a problem is that for many people, this presence is veiled. The Bible says that Satan, has blind, Satan, the God of this age, has blinded the minds of unbelieving hearts so they can't see the light of the gospel in Jesus Christ. There was a veil from Israel. They didn't want to go up the mountain. There was a veil that Moses put over his face. There was a veil behind the cloud. The Ark of the Covenant was even veiled behind a temple, uh, behind a curtain in the tabernacle. There is a veil that is over men's eyes that make this glory not so great. Something not to be desired. The Bible says that we were cast out of the presence of God in the garden, that we had fell and fell from grace, that we were put out from the presence of God and blinded by sin, blinded and fallen to temptation. We walked away from God, discovering uh, all the earthly pleasures we could attain, trying to build our own kingdoms, make something for our own name, desiring everything in this world could offer. But yet it never satisfied, but still, man never turned back to God. We couldn't go back, we were cast out. God's glory was veiled. We decided to find all the appetite in this world, all the pleasure this world could offer more than the pleasures of heaven. Even Israel, who was elected by God to show His glory to the world, had a veil over their hearts. The same is true for Christians in the church in America today. Christians can cover the glory of God with all kinds of veils of 
religious traditions, denominational labels, pastors, popularity, worship styles, church chairs and pews and programs. You know that uh, the Pew Research Center just uh, last in 2021 came out and said that half of American Protestants only now attend one Sunday a month? Half of the Christian church in America only attends one Sunday a month or less. There's a veil. There's, a, there's obviously a veil that says, I can adhere to this cultural tradition, but I don't really care about the presence of God. I can be Christian in name only without ever experiencing glory. But what the psalmist said, he said, but when you see his glory, everything in his presence, everything in his temple can't help but have a gasp of glory. It's an, oh my gosh, he's awesome. It's a desire just to see more of him. It's a David's longing. I just want to be more into this. It's Moses saying, God, I've seen it veiled, but keep on showing me your glory. I don't want to leave this place. Don't take us from this place until I see more of what I just saw. What is it about the glory of God that's so desirable? See, those who see it can't help but respond with glory. I thank God that that glory didn't stay on a mountain behind a cloud. That glory didn't stay in an ark behind a curtain. But the Bible says that the Word of God became flesh, and it dwelt, tabernacled, templed among us. That's what that word means. His tabernacle left the mountain. His tabernacle left a veil of a, behind a tent. It's left a place of an altar, a blood sacrifice by religious men. It left that place of heaven, and it came, and it tabernacled among us. And John says, and we beheld His glory. We beheld it. The best way you can see the glory of God is in the manifestation of Jesus Christ. It left the veil of that place in that cloud. It came veiled in frail humanity. And God has always desired for men to see His glory. Why? He wants to show you Himself. And He will give you all that He can handle, that you can handle. God wants you to look at His glory and gasp. Your whole life response is what He wants. You just to declare glory. He wants your face to radiate with the light of the gospel. The Bible says that Jesus' light was not like the sun, the moon, and the stars, but it was a supernatural light. And it says that that light was the life of men. You see, that glory that God wants you to have is the life He wants to put inside of you. He doesn't want to leave the glory out there in a box. He doesn't want to leave it on a mountain. He wants to put that glory deep on the inside of you. And He says, man, if there's anybody who wants to pursue this thing, I will give you all that you can handle. And your whole life will be a response to the presence of God. Your whole life will be like the things in His temple. Everything says glory. Somebody say glory. glory. Let me give you five things as quick as we can. I'm going to try to do five today. If we don't get them all today, we'll wrap, we'll wrap, wrap them up next week. Ten essential qualities of those who see God's glory in their life. Number one is faith. This whole Christian life is a journey of faith. Abraham, the father of faith, the Bible said that God took a childless man and told him he'd be the father of many nations. In Genesis 15, verse 6, it says that Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. Grace of God chooses you, but your faith will qualify you. Why? Because faith is the currency of heaven. Faith is, 
is that currency that God measures how much he can entrust you with, how much of his glory he can give you. And, and Abraham believed the Lord in faith. We know in Hebrews, faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It's the assurance about things we cannot see. Faith is going to see God work in miracles. And James says, but faith without action, faith without works is dead. It's not enough just to believe it in theory or in doctrine or denomination, but faith is what you rest your whole life on. Faith is that if I believe this chair can hold me, I have faith that this chair can take my weight. I can put my whole trust onto this chair because this is what I'm leaning my life on. And faith is the confidence that I can trust God with everything He can handle. And I can lay my whole life on Him. And that's what Abraham did. He left everything he knew to follow this word that seemed impossible by faith, to sell out and to follow. And that's what the early church did. That's what the disciples did. They saw something in the word of God spoken. Come follow me. I'll make you into something you don't even understand. And they left all they had, put their whole weight by faith onto the word that God had spoken. Faith is what God is using to measure how much glory He can give you. How much of His presence that He wants to put on the inside of you and use you with. Hebrews eleven six. it's impossible to please God without what? Faith. Anyone who wants to come... To come to His glory, to come to see Him, must believe that God exists and that He wants to reward those. He wants to give it to you. You've got to believe God wants to give you more of Himself, that He is there. He's there. Even if I don't see it, He's there. But then I will give up everything to pursue Him. He says, I can use a person like that. I can bless a person like that. That son of promise was Isaac for Abraham. But that son of promise for you and for me is Jesus Christ. That son of promise that Abraham sold out to receive is the same son you and I have to sell out to receive, and that son is Jesus. Have I given up this worldly life to follow him? It means trusting that God is always good, God is always true, even if it doesn't make sense. It means giving up a temporary dwelling on this life to gain an eternal dwelling in the next so are you that kind of Christian? Number one is faith. God wants to give you more of himself. He wants to reward you with more of himself. But you've got to be a person that sells out, that crucifies their flesh, that denies their self, that takes up their cross and follows him at the risk of looking foolish and saying, God, I just want all that I can have from you. I believe your word is true. Number one is faith. Number two is holiness. Holiness. Well, what R.C. Sproul says, it says, you can't see God rightly until you see God is holy. Everything in God's tabernacle and His temple was consecrated. Everything was set apart for God's use, only for God's use. Even the Levites and the priests himself, the people were even set apart. And in the, uh, the left side of this little room, this outer holy uh, place, there was a, a lamp, a menorah, this candlestick, basically. And it had oil in it. And the job of these priests were to keep that oil full, the purest oil, and keep that flame lit. And God was the first person to ever light that candle. But in the evil day of Eli and his evil sons, the Bible says that flame risks going out. But there was a young boy, Samuel wrote, that slept near that place. 1 Samuel chapter 3, that there was a boy that was lying down in the temple where the ark of God was. That means he was lying next to the secret place. 
He was lying next to the holy place. He was watching that flame every day. While the rest of the people who should have known better should have kept the flame burning, they had all but forgotten the presence of God. But this young little boy of faith knew something had to keep burning in the presence of God. And he slept there watching it so it would not go out. And that little boy steward what God had given. He was calling up a generation. And the Bible says that as he laid there watching that candle nearing flamed out and he would refill it while the other men of religiosity had just gone to other areas doing undespeakable things. God spoke to this little boy and he said, here I am. You see, holiness can be like Eli's sons. It can just be this outward profession. It can be this religiosity. It can be, well, I've got the robes. I've got the status. I've got the position. I've got the church membership. I've got the right clothes. I've got the right hairdo. I don't watch those things. I don't do those things. And holiness, if outward only, can neglect the very thing that makes it holy, the presence of God. Amen. The presence of God. Holiness can become an outward formality without any care for the presence of God. But holy means two things. It means position and purpose. See, holiness, it means set apart for the purpose of God. It is a position of where that item is located and a purpose for what that item is used for. But holiness never began with the work of men because every single thing in that room, every single thing in that tabernacle was done two things to it. It was washed with holy water and it was sprinkled with blood. I love that. Everything that is God's is washed with holy water and sprinkled with blood. It wasn't that object. That object wasn't special till it was washed with blood and water, till it was set apart for use. And so when you and I are positioned as holy, it means that you have been washed with the water of the Holy Spirit. You've been sprinkled with Christ's blood. The Bible says you are sanctified. You are declared righteous by God's work alone through Jesus Christ on the cross. It's not your dress code, how much you do gifts in the spiritual language. It is not how many movies you do or not write or watch. That is only done by the work of Jesus Christ. Holiness is His work, and it's your position. It's a declaration that you are who He says you are through His Son. So if God wants to pour out something on you, it's holy things. He wants holy vessels, sanctified vessels. That's your position, but it's also your purpose. You see, you've got a purpose for being now. He says, well, now your purpose, Paul says, is to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. You've got something special living on the inside of you. And you don't continue to be that thing by doing the thing you used to do. And you don't continue to do that thing by doing what you want to do. If you're a temple of the Holy Spirit, you are a place where God dwells. So you live your life to please God and for God. And how do you do that? It's not by going back to a list of rules and the law. Paul says it's by living by the Spirit through faith. You're a spiritual temple, so you've got to do this life spiritually. You can't come to Pastor Heath and sanctuary and say, Pastor Heath, give me all the rules for being a Christian, and I'll just check them off. Give me the dress codes, the thing to do, the not to do, things to say, don't say, what to watch, not to watch. Those are religious things. Eli's sons knew that, but it's a person that cultivates the flame like little Samuel. It's a person that says, God, I want to cherish the thing you've given and entrusted to me. And he says, like that, like Samuel, those are the people I say, come a little closer. Come a little deeper. 
How are you caring for the flame inside of you determines how God's going to speak and call you to do more. Holiness is what allows God to use us. We don't earn it. We don't do anything to receive it other than to say, God, I want to give my life to you. He says, here's a position and here's a purpose. But like Samuel, you've got to care for what God's put inside of you. You can't live like the devil all weekend and come to church on Sunday and think God's going to do something great in your life. I'm going to be honest. But I'm not going to give you a list of rules either. I'm not going to give you a dress code. I'm not going to tell you what movies you can and cannot watch. That flame on the inside of you will tell you, I'm about to go out. You need to consecrate yourself. Pour some oil back in. Keep that flame burning. And God will begin to speak to you and say, hey, come a little closer. Come here. I want to do something in your life. Number one is faith. Number two is holiness. Number three is prayer. See, there's a secret life of prayer, and it's a life of abiding in Christ. Jesus never taught his disciples to preach, but he taught them to pray. He'd often slip away alone, and they would notice it and say, Lord, teach us to pray. So what Paul would write later. He says, guys, pray without ceasing. He would say in Colossians, devote yourself to prayer. In Ephesians, he would say, pray at all times in the Spirit. And I wonder... If prayer is just a formality for so many people, I've, I've heard pastors pray in King James, and I'm going to continue to pray like they pray. Or I've, I've heard people say this way, so I've got to have the right words to say. But praying in the Spirit is something learned. It's going to Christ in the school of prayer and learning how to pray from His throne. It's being abiding with Him and in Him. And I love what some of these old, oh, I love reading the old guys. Anybody who's old and dead, I, I, I love reading those Christian authors. And Luther says this, he says, to be a Christian without prayer... It's no more possible than to be alive without breathing. I love it. You can't be a Christian and not pray because you're not abiding in Christ. I grew up in church. Uh, my parents, uh, my dad was not in church growing up, and he turned to God, and so he raised our family in church. And, and I didn't grow up really knowing much more about prayer than now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord I don't die in my sleep. You know that, that scary prayer we tell our kids? Like, you know, you're going to die if you don't pray. You know, like it's a weird prayer. But anyway, uh, that's what I knew. Five minutes here, you pray over your meal, except for your Mexican chips. You know, you have to eat the chips and salsa first. Then you pray. I don't know why we, anyway. But, but that was the extent of it. But when I learned that there was this life of prayer, that Jesus would pray hours at a time, that the greatest men of God spent hours in prayer every day and every week. John Wesley would not hire a pastor that did not pray two hours a day. And he said this, God does nothing except an answer to prayer. Oswald Chambers said, prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. I love what E.M. Bounds says. He says, prayer breaks all bars, dissolves all chains, opens all prisons, widens all straits by which God's saints have been held. The effective, fervent prayer, James says, of a righteous man, what? Availeth much. Elijah prayed. It didn't rain for three and a half years. It shook up Ahab's kingdom. And then he called fire down from heaven with one of the shortest prayers in all of Scripture. Because he was a righteous man. The Bible says the early church prayed uh, without ceasing continually. And the house where they gathered was all shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Not once, but multiple times over the course of that 30 years of the book of Acts. The entire congregations were all filled, immersed with the power of God's Spirit because they devoted themselves to prayer. Prayer meeting was the foundation of the church. The Bible says that Paul and Silas was in prison one night and praying and singing praise. And the Lord shook even the whole prison and loosened their bonds. What if we had earth-shaking prayer more than programs in the church? 
What if we had earth-shaking prayer more than programs? And oh, we want a youth pastor and a kids' church and this program and that program. We want nice lights and nice pastors and projectors and sound equipment and missions. And we want all this stuff, but we don't want to pray. We don't have prayer meetings. We don't pray hours a day like the early church. We don't labor and fast and weep and wail and wait on the Lord in altars. We want to get home at a certain time. We have a clock to follow. We have a time slot that we fit God into our schedules. And it's just go, 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 busy, 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 do, do, do. I don't have time to pray. But prayer is the abiding effectual work of a Christian. You see, his promise is this, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock, it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds to him who knocks, it will be opened. Why aren't things being opened? Why don't we have revival? We're not praying. All things, whatever you ask in prayer, believing, you shall receive. What does that mean? If you ask for it in faith, believing, he will do it. God does not not answer prayer. When people pray in faith, God always answers. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. It's not a matter of if God will answer his people, it's a matter of when. God always answers the faithful in prayer. He says, whatever you ask, whatever, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. What does that mean? If you want to ask for more of God's glory, Ah, he's going to give it. If you ask for glory to be poured out in this church, God will do it. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. If you ask for God's glory to be poured out in your life, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. God wants to give you more of himself. That's his greatest desire. That's Jesus' earthly prayer. God, I pray they would be in one as we are in one together. God, I pray for them, not just these, but those who come after, he said in John 17. I pray they would know you like I know you, to behold his glory. Are you been asking for glory? Are you a student of prayer? Have you made prayer one of the foundations of your life? That's number three. God will give you whatever you ask. Amen. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. If you're abiding in his presence, he will give you all that you ask. Number four is kingdom mission. Missionary David Livingston said, God had an only son and he made him a missionary. He had an only son, he made him a missionary. God has been on this track since Genesis chapter 3 in the fall to save, seek and save the lost, to redeem mankind. It's his promised plan. He gave it to Israel, but Israel thought it was all about them. Remember the story of Jonah and the whale? I don't want to save those horrible, awful people. Why would I want to do that? That didn't work out so well. Okay? God has always wanted to give the world this light of the gospel. So the Bible says when Israel turned away, God sent his only son as a missionary to restore to him a kingdom. Jesus says in a parable, he came to get a kingdom and he purchased a kingdom and he left and went back to his father and he left stewards of that kingdom on the earth and he gave them all talents and ability, each in different measure. And the Bible says he's coming back again one day. Luke and Matthew both say he's coming back to see how that kingdom has stewarded, those servants of the kingdom have stewarded what the master left. And there's one that says he would find one who did not invest into his kingdom 
And he says, I'll call that servant a wicked and lazy and worthless slave. And I will take what I gave to him, and I will give it to the others, and I will say to the angels of heaven, Bind him and throw him out into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, because you didn't love what I gave you. You didn't love it enough to invest in it. So I love what Emil uh, Berner, he's a theologian, he's now dead. 1966 he passed. He wrote this, I've saved it for years. Because God is a lover of His kingdom and His church is a lover of His kingdom. And He says, the church exists. The church exists by mission. Just as a fire exists by burning. Where there's no mission, there is no church. And where there is neither church nor mission, there is no faith. You cannot separate our, our rescue mission. You cannot separate what we're supposed to be doing from the kingdom, from who we are. Church is not a place you come to and you listen on a pew to a couple good messages a few times a month or a year, and you go home and live your life. That is not what this is all about. This is a Holy Spirit hospital for the broken. We are not a hotel. We are a hospital. Right? We're not a resort. We're a rescue mission. We're here, Jude says, to go to the gates of hell to rescue people, snatching them from the fire, hating even the stench of smoke. We are here to seek and save the lost. Let me tell you something about God's glory and His mission. I remember what Carlos Anaconda, he's an evangelist uh, in Argentina, great revivals in Argentina in the 90s. And he said, if you want to see God's power move, if you want to see great miracles in your life, you have to go to where God is. And where did Jesus say God is? He was leaving the 99 to go find the one that was in the dark trenches of the pit of hell. And he would rescue them from that place and lead them back to the flock. He leaves the 99 to find the one. And if you want to see God break through dark chains, and loosen bonds and turn over things in the devil's kingdom, you've got to be where God is. It's not in a safe, secure hotel for saints. It's in a hospital where sinners are getting restored. It is in a place that is busting down Satan's kingdom and rescuing people back to the kingdom of God. You want to see God move? We have to be a church that's on mission. It is not about what color things are in this building. I could care less if the walls were pink. It is not about the lights or the polish sermons or the dress code. It is not about what we do here in this building. It's what we do out there, how we're seeking and saving the lost with God. It's time for the church to get back to the streets, and that's when God's going to move. Amen. It is not filled of dreams. Build it, and they will come. It's not. God wants to give us His glory, but you've got to be where God is. He's seeking and saving the lost. How are you using what God has given you to glorify His name? Each of us will give an account of how we invested the gifts and talents God gave us. We will give an account for the money we have in our bank. We will give account for our time we will give account for the natural things you've been born with. Some of you are good at so many things. You'll give account for your spiritual gifts of how you use them to increase His kingdom and His glory. I want to go where God is. And the lastly is this, the unity of love. I told you we wouldn't get through all ten today. The unity of love. Lastly, the unity of love. God always pours out His Spirit where there's unity. When the early church accepted the mission, they devoted themselves to prayer. The Bible says in Acts, those first believers, those first followers were all together. Somebody say together. They were together and in one accord in one place. 
And then the Holy Spirit immersed them completely, every single person in the church, man and woman, slave and free, Jew and Gentile. All of them throughout the entire book of Acts were immersed, not one time, but repeatedly. Immersed, in the Bible, the Luke says, immersed for the first time. And he says, filled and filled and filled and filled. Every time they continued to do what God was calling them to do, he would continue to fill them. And fill them means come under the influence of and the direction of. It means to, uh, we would say someone is filled by alcohol and then alcohol begins to control them. Uh, and affect how they act. We would say people who are filled with the Holy Spirit come under the influence of the Holy Spirit and they begin to act how the Holy Spirit causes them to act. Somebody say amen. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. And it says, when they came together in unity in one accord and one mind and under the name of Jesus, they were not looking to anyone else or any one person that the Holy Spirit poured out, and all the believers were together and had all things in common. They'd sold their property possessions, shared them with all, to the extent that anyone had a need. In verse 46 of Acts 2, day by day, continue with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They took their meals together, there's that word, together, with gladness and sincerity of heart. Jesus' last prayer before He died, before the cross, was, Father, John 17, I pray they'd be one. And that was fulfilled on Acts chapter 2. I pray they'd be one as we are. God blesses churches in unity. God blesses communities of churches in unity. Every revival in the history of our country and around the world has always been when churches of multiple denominations, churches of the same denomination for heaven's sake, came together in unity for one purpose, His glory. It wasn't about a pastor or a church or a name or a logo. It wasn't about how we do church. See, those are petty things. And churches can be easily the same inside, backbiting. And we care about our carpet color, so we're voting the pastor out. Or we're voting for power and deacon boards. And all the things is, why is that happening? Because they've gotten their eyes off of Him. When you are captivated by Him, what did the psalmist say at the beginning? Everything says glory. When you see him, the natural response is to say, glory, I don't care about what he or she did or didn't do, is or not doing, what their opinion is. I'm not worried about all that petty stuff. I'm looking at him, and all I can say is glory. Man, all I can see when a church gets off of looking at one another and starts looking at him, we become one. That's what we say in our marriage counseling. It's not about trying to please one another. You both look at God, you'll both end up at the same destination. You both go the same towards him, you'll be one. It's all about him. And as the early church focused on him, they got united and God's glory fell out. They became known for their love for one another. They sacrificed for one another. They spoke the truth in love. They gave preference to one another in honor. They put aside malice and deceit and hypocrisy, envy and slander. They refused to divide, and they did not forsake the gathering of themselves together. Why? Because they were captivated with His glory. And if you can just focus on Jesus and not on Heath Harris and not on sanctuary and not on our programs and all the things that are so great at this church and a wonderful church we have. I'm so blessed to pastor this. There very few pastors have the kind of church we have here. I'm so blessed with sanctuary. But it's not about us. It's all about Him. Amen. And the more we focus on His glory, the more we'll reflect His glory. And we'll just all exclaim, man, glory. Would you stand with me in this room this morning? Am I so captivated with God's glory, I've put away childish things? Amen. We just want to focus on Him.
Would you bow your heads and your hearts with me this morning? God, I want to get to a place where all we see is you. All we see is you.